Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 and let us dive in to the details that were just recorded for us there in the Orthodox Catechism, question number 19, regarding and relating to the redemption of sinful man. Hebrews chapter 10, and today we will look at verses 1 through 18, Lord willing. Hebrews chapter 10. Follow along as I read. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure." Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come, to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered once sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds while I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. I'd like to open up today as part of my introduction a quote from a very helpful book that I've been reading. And the quote goes like this. The authority of the Bible is God's self-authenticating word speaking through itself. And in order to hear God's word correctly, it is crucial that we interpret it as a unified book with Jesus Christ at its center. Well, I wanted to open up today with this quote from this book 
of how we are to approach our interpretation of the Bible simply because that is what we have been learning in the book of Hebrews. All throughout the book of Hebrews, he has been teaching us that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, while being two separate and distinct covenant arrangements for their particular purposes, they are ultimately and inseparately united in this sense. They point to and they reveal unto all of creation the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, the entire Bible is teaching us this one story. The book of Hebrews is amplifying this one story. And Jesus is at the center of that redemptive story. Today we begin chapter 10 here in the book of Hebrews. We only have three chapters to go, and these last three chapters will continue to work together to convince not only their original audience in the first century, Jews who had been converted unto the Christian faith through the gospel, but also these last three chapters are going to continue to work together for us as well, to continue to trust in the gospel message of Jesus Christ that all of the Bible is pointing to, to continue to trust in this hour the high priestly work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and continue to trust and have faith in His heavenly intercession for us in the heavenly sanctuary, all of which is completely and ultimately superior to the old covenant works-based arrangement that they had previously lived under. As members of this blessed new covenant. Friends, as participants in this wonderful covenant of grace. Which was established upon the love of the Father. Which was purchased by the sacrifice of the Son. Which has been administered through the mercy of the Spirit. Freely given to His people. They as first century Christians and us today ought never to be tempted to ever exchange what we possess in Jesus and the covenant blessings we have through His high priestly work for any other arrangement in our relationship with the Father and our Holy Creator. May we never be tempted to ever add to, take away from this blessed work that Jesus has accomplished and He has given to us freely. We don't know exactly what the temptations were for these first century Jews who were converted unto Christianity. But we know what our temptations may be in this day and age. Oftentimes, we imperceptibly wish to add to the grace of Christ. We we wish to add to that which He has done in order to gain favor or somehow status in God's family. Well, back to and in connection with the quote that we just considered about the unification of the Bible pointing to Christ. Chapter 10 today is an instructive example. Chapter 10 today, we will see, is an instructive example of how the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews once again utilizes all of the scriptures to teach us today in a message that I'm entitling The servant son, referring to Jesus and his cross work as the servant of the covenant. The servant son is exalted. The servant son is sustained. And the servant son is honored. I got my headings wrong. It's sustained first, exalted second, honored third. You have your sermon notes. Allow me to to, to, to rearrange it there. 
this is the, the message today. This is what I believe is coming out of Hebrews chapter 10. And he wonderfully interacts with all of the Old Testament to show us these blessed truths. You have the outline in front of you. Verses 1 through 4, first of all, points us to the servant son. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 and 4, as those who have been with us going through the book of Hebrews, you have noticed it's mostly a reciting of what he's already established in his argument, mainly in chapter 9, to demonstrate the superiority of the sacrifice, the priesthood, and the covenant of Jesus by comparing it to the inferiority of the old covenant sacrifices. That's pretty plainly on the surface in verses 1 through 4. We've already considered this in great detail. And there ought not to be any confusion as what the text is trying to communicate or attempting to communicate to us. It's this. It is expressing the inferiority of the Old Covenant, namely, look at verse 1, that it cannot make the comers thereunto or living under it perfect. Why? Because verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. This is emphasizing, of course, the superiority of of the work of Jesus and His blood, chapters 8 and definitely chapter 9. You remember, we talked a lot about the blood, the blood, the blood. Go back and listen to chapter 9. It's what it was all about. Now, while verses 1 through 4, beloved, they are the theme of verses 1 through 4 primarily demonstrating the superiority of Christ's blood, cross work, and covenant accomplishment. For our purposes today, notice with me something in verse 1 that points us to the servant son. Notice in verse 1 where it says, The law, the ceremonial law, other parts of the law, possessed a shadow of good things. The law having a shadow of good things. Beloved, in this phrase, we are seeing how that in and through the old covenant arrangement, God was pointing all of those who lived under its administration outside of its own covenantal limitations, meaning it could not make anyone perfect, they had to come year year after year, he was pointing them outside of that limitation unto the promised sacrificial servant and Messiah that he promised children in Genesis 3.15, spread abroad through the message of the prophets and the patriarchs, and finally brought to fruition through the incarnation and the life of Jesus Christ. In this way, the law and the sacrifices we are seeing for verse 1, we're preaching a gospel message each time an animal was slaughtered. Amen? But just as these visible messages went forth year after year, feast by feast, they were accompanied with, they were joined with faithful verbal proclamations of the gospel message. So the old covenant people of God, they had, yes, the sacrifices to point them to the need of forgiveness of sin. But they also were sent the prophets and the patriarchs to verbally tell them and decree to them, you need a blood atonement. I've given it to you in your sermon notes. Look at the message from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where the prophet, inspired by the Spirit, preaching the gospel, said, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch. Sound familiar to our Old Testament reading this morning from 
uh, chapter 33. And there shall come a branch that that shall grow out of his roots. Isaiah goes on in chapter 53, we know, to describe what will happen to that branch. Amen. By his stripes we will be healed. A blood atonement, a promised sacrificial Messiah will come. God all throughout the Old Testament uh, prophecies was pointing to Jesus. This is what's in verse 1. Those things possessed a shadow. They did have some value in them. Jeremiah 23.5 you have in your sermon notes. Behold the days come, Jeremiah said, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. There's that phrase again, a branch. And the king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. You have Zechariah, I'll skip it for time's sake, but throughout all of the Old Testament, the righteous by faith understood very clearly that the animal sacrifices were inferior and they could not make them perfect or ultimately please God because God required again and again, he was teaching them this lesson, sincere and perfect obedience. Sincere and perfect obedience obedience. He instituted these shadowy sacrifices that verse 1 is talking about to give the people a picture that they needed to be and was required an atonement for sin by substitution. Now think for a moment what we've been learning all through Hebrews. These two great things, perfect obedience, atonement by substitution, they come together wonderfully the inspired writer has been showing us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All the things that the Bible was pointing to, a need for atonement for sin, perfect obedience, substitutionary death, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has been interpreting all of the Bible for us as being fulfilled in Christ and His covenant work for His church. All of Hebrews has been teaching us this, friends. And when Jesus came in the incarnation, which we'll look at in just a moment, all of the prophets that were living then, they pointed to Him as well. Do you remember Simeon in the temple? The living prophet at that time? He lifted up Christ, he beheld Christ, and he said, we have the substance now. No longer do we have the shadows. I've been waiting, oh God, that you would keep me alive so I would have and see the Messiah, the substance of what all the shadows pointed to. And then how can we forget the prophet, the prophet, capital T of the New Testament era when Christ came in his incarnation and began his earthly ministry, John the Baptist, there in the Jordan, baptizing the river. And what was he doing, friends? He was telling all of Israel, the shadows are now done with. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. And there is the substance. And I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. All throughout the Bible and then in the coming of Christ, God was pointing away from the shadows unto the substance. Oh, but how may we apply this today for us? Well, I've given you a list of things in your sermon notes that I want to encourage us to never be content with just the shadows. Never be content with just the shadows. Oh, but Pastor Doug, how could we fall into the rut as fine religious people in the new covenant of ever being content or being uh, settled down with just the shadows? We have Christ, the substance. Well, this is all very true, my friends. But consider that there's a few shadows, even today, that we want to be careful to be aware of. To never be content with 
as meaning they are in and of themselves the substance. The first one is, I don't know how I would head this, but I just give you a list. Um, It's connected with things of this world. Church buildings, large institutions, earthly powers, worldly status. I would just say status in general, even within the kingdom of Christ. You know, position. Wanting the praise of men. Remember the words of our Lord in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. These things, these things don't, don't, don't see the substance of Christ, the substance of the faith in these things. While it's necessary for us to have a climate, well, it's not necessary. I, I, I think you enjoy having a climate-controlled building here. You know, this, this is not Christianity. This is not the sum and substance of our faith, this lively hope that we have within us. We shouldn't look at the size of the building, the size of the crowd, the bank account of the institution, etc., etc., as a sign of uh, a success or connection, you see, with the substance of Christ. No, where you see a community, no matter how big they are, no matter how simple they may look, look at the Russian church gathering back there on the bulletin board where they're meeting outside in the woods, partaking of communion in the middle of winter in their winter coats. Beloved, when you find a group, a clutch of people like that who have the substance, dear friends, that's the picture of what Christ came to accomplish. Not the big edifices. Because honestly, we're beginning to see in our own age, are we not? That a lot of these edifices are just mere plastic. They're just mere for show. Be careful also, friends, of the shadow of incorrect covenant identification. There are some, based upon very bad theology, that want people to believe that there is an outward classification of being a member of the covenant of grace without having an inward reality of it. Oh, friends, if you're one of those people who have been deceived by such theology, thinking yourself as having an interest or an ownership or being a covenant member without the reality in your heart, that is but a shadow of that theology. Oh, don't rest there. Don't rest there. Pray for, earnestly contend that God would birth within you the reality of what the covenant truly means. Faith, a lively faith, a lively hope, a lively trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very dangerous theology. To give people an idea to be in some way content with a shadow. Now it's never preached that way. But in the practical sense in the pew, it sometimes is lived out that way. Lastly, the blessed visible symbol we have, but still but a shadow of the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, friends, they're not the substance of Christ. But they do powerfully point us to Him, don't they? But remember, baptism and the Lord's Supper, partaking of it, that is not what saves you. There could be very well some young Christians amongst us today who are maturing to a point in their understanding and you very well may have Christ. You very well may have laid hold of the Gospel message. You know the reality of your sins. You know the reality of the conviction and condemnation that they deserve. And you have come by faith and you have trusted in Christ and Christ alone that you'd be saved. But until you reach that point of having the maturity to take upon yourselves the responsibility 
of a church member, which includes discipline. You are waiting and you are patiently growing in your understanding of the gospel. Young Christian amongst us today understand that when we partake of baptism, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are no more a Christian than you. No more. We are simply coming in and partaking of a means of grace that's an external, visible message that God has given us to remind us of what we have professed and confessed and continue to do and stay loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will come a day in the Lord's timing Will you yourself will stand before the church of God and publicly say, I am ready to become a visible member of Christ's church and accept all of its responsibilities. And you will dine with us at the Feast of the Lamb every Lord's Supper and we will walk alongside you. But never think that these things make you a Christian. They are but shadows pointing to the substance which is in Christ. Well, let's move on here as we've been pointed to Christ. Now, picking up in verse 5, to consider how God has sustained this servant son. He points all throughout the Bible to his servant son. And now we come to verses 5 and 10 to consider how he has sustained his servant son in this very difficult work of redemption. All the blood talked about in chapter 9, etc., etc. Verse 5 picks up the flow of the passage And as where in verses 1 through 4, we see how God was pointing us to his promised servant son. And verses 5 and 10, we see how that God sustained him. Here, beginning with verse 5, the inspired writer, in connection with the thought I shared earlier, will interpret the Old Testament scriptures as a unified book with Jesus Christ at its center. Look at verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrificed and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Friends, what the inspired New Testament writer is doing here is quoting almost verbatim Psalms 40 that I gave you in your sermon notes. Psalms 40. He's laying it down here in and beginning with chapter 5 and he's saying this reveals Jesus Christ. Now perhaps as you see in your sermon notes, look at Psalms 40. Verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read it. And you'll see how he's using it. Psalms 40, 6 and 8. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears, the Hebrew translated says, my ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo I come in the volume of the book that is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written written within my heart. Now look there at verse 6 in Psalms 40. And perhaps you've noticed this, that in the Hebrew, the text of the psalm says, ears, my ears hast thou opened. But in verse 5, chapter 10, where we're at today, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he says, my body. Well, friends, the writer of Hebrews didn't misquote Psalms 40. Remember, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nor do we have an error in our Bibles here at this point in verse 5, chapter 10. What is being communicated by Psalms 40, Hebrews 10, 5 in its utilization, both pointing to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, what we have being communicated is that the meaning of Psalms 40 and all the other related passages are pointing to the submission of Christ's entire life to the will of God 
particularly in the context we're reading now, obeying His law, fulfilling every jot and every tittle for the purpose of His coming. Thou dost not desire sacrifice and burnt offerings where there is not a surrendered life. And so lo, in the volume of this book I have come to delight and to do Thy will. The servant's son Messiah comes and his ears are open to the voice of his father. The Hebrew text today in chapter 10 verses 5 through 10 is demonstrating not only his ears but his entire life. All his passions as a man. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ in the hypostatic union was very God and very man. He could get tired, he could get weak, he could get hungry, he could get thirsty. All of those passions which are common to all of us, were surrendered perfectly to the will and the voice of His Father. Now there is something particularly and very importantly lying under the surface here in verses 5-10 through that I want us to see together as it relates to how God sustained Christ being subject to those like passions without sin. How God sustained Christ in His humanity which He laid down and He surrendered to the will of the Father. And we're going to see this first by observing in verse 5 where it says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. You see in Psalms 40 verse 6, it says the same thing. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Oh, God gave them that. Why would God not want that? These two texts are very similar to other places where the Old Testament prophets pointed out God's utter disdain for dead, empty, hypocritical worship, which the wayward Jews at that time and many times were offering up to Him. The sustainment of Christ's crowning covenantal accomplishment is described... I apologize. I printed my notes on double-sided paper here and I just skipped over to page, skipped a page. These statements are describing what we see oftentimes in the Old Testament of God's disdain for empty, dead, hypocritical worship. You have it in your sermon notes, several places, where this echoes this disdain. Isaiah 1.11 What purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs and of he goats. Don't bring them to me. I don't want burnt sacrifices. I don't want those things. Amos 5, 21 and 22. I hate, God says, I despise your feast days and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me up burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Finally, Jeremiah 6.20, To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba and the sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. Now, let's read again verse 5 in Hebrews 10. A body thou hast prepared for me. Remember what I said? It's teaching, it's signifying Christ's willing obedience, His willing surrender. He's not coming into the service of God to fulfill all the covenant obligations that the Jews can never do in order to pay an atonement for their sins themselves because he sees it as some kind of begrudgingly duty to do. No, friends, 
His whole disposition, His whole being is entirely and could only be consecrated and focused on the will and the love that fundamentally underlines the entire covenant agreement by which He will accomplish the salvation of His people. You have given me ears. Oh, you have given me a life. And I surrender it all to you, not begrudgingly. We see in verse 7, look at your Bibles. Lo, I come in the volume of the book that is written to me to do thy will, O God. Christ, Christ, the greater son of David, did what David only could desire to ever do by faith. Jesus willingly, delightfully, sacrificially, and perfectly Obeyed as we see now coming to verse 9, even unto death. He says in verse 9, Then said he, still utilizing the Old Testament scriptures to show how they were filled in Christ. He said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He take away the first, that he may establish the second. I come, he says, his incarnation It was required for many reasons, I believe. We don't have time to get into all of them now. But namely, we see here for this, so that the imperfect sacrifices, the blood sacrifices of the first arrangement, the shadows, verse 1 says, so that they could be taken away in order that the second, him, the substance, and the blessings of the new covenant could be established. That was inseparable to the reason of his incarnation. But I can't help but go there. Think about all the other blessings of Jesus coming in the form of a man to show us the love of God, the compassion and the mercy of God. All of us in here would probably admit that we have at times in the use of our sanctified imagination what Jesus looked like. But beloved, can I honestly ask you, can you you not wait until you see him face to face? And you see the love and the compassion in his eyes, knowing that he left all the glories above to come and to die, as the book of Romans tells us, for ill-deserving sinners like us. Mike, he'll look right through you. He'll look right through us all. And, he'll, and we will know that he knows every single thing. But yet, at the very same time, There will be not any ounce of condemnation or conviction, but there will be a penetrating sense of love and grace. I would have loved to have been one of those first century Jews that ate and dined with Jesus. To see his gestures. Just to to see the way he talked to people, the way he approached to people, the way he would take a stand for the truth and firm. He He was a godly man. He knew how to so show love and to wash feet. And he knew how to turn over tables. Well, verse 10. How did God sustain his servant, son, during under the excruciating and unimaginable demands of the law? We see it in verse 10. Because By His will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is how God sustained our Lord. The covenant reward, which is the salvation of His people. Covenant love, covenant fidelity, covenant reward. All of this combined is what sustained our Lord when He was tempted by the devil to take His bread 
when the Lord was starving in the wilderness, to partake of the the devil's cup when he was thirsty in his time of need, to accept, you remember the bribe of the devil, all of the worldly riches to escape suffering and shame. And this is why we read, oh, get it, especially for you today who are still hanging on to Christ, looking to Him. Remember what we read in Hebrews 12 too? Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, there's the sustainability. This is what sustained Him as a servant's son. This is what sustained Him. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Read that again. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Friends, the love that Christ had for his church, for his people, for those, the whosoever's. We read it today in the prophecy of Jeremiah 33. The innumerable grains of sand, the innumerable host of the heavens, all of those, the whosoever shall believe. This is what sustained him through the course of being the faithful servant son. For those of you who have come to the cross of Christ and you have truly tasted of that love and it has and come into your life, and it has changed you. Friends, let me tell you that that love, that humble, gracious, faithful love, it can help you and sustain you as well to do things you never thought you could do. Oh God, I cannot take one more day in this relationship. Oh God, I cannot take one more day in this hellhole that's called a job. Oh, but I know I need to earn a living for my family, and if I quit, you know, I can. Oh God, I can't do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Look at your suffering, faithful servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the joy, the love of what was going to be accomplished through his cross work, he endured the cross. Oh, Christian, you can sustain. You can push forward. You can hold on. Not enough of your own strength. No, you look to the example in Christ. You look to the promises, the yes and the amen that's in Him. Wow, what another message that would be. Looking at the elements of what Christ utilized in His own ministry to sustain prayer, the Word, etc., etc., The sustainment of Christ owning the crowning covenant accomplishment is described, we see, as joy and setting at liberty the sons of men who sold their own birthright and became miserable servants and sinners of darkness. It was the joy to set them free. To this, friends, we can only reply in the words of that famous hymn writer, Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's the only response we can have when we consider what it was that sustained him in his covenant work as a servant son. Well, moving on quickly now in our passage, we now observe in verses 11 through 14 that God exalted his servant son, didn't he? In acceptance of his covenant sacrifice that once and forever 
forgave sins. Notice with me, friends, that in verses 11 through 14 under our heading, God exalts the servant's son. The Holy Spirit of God once again interprets a very key prophetical Old Testament passage for us. First, in verse 11 and the first half of 12a, the inspired writer demonstrates the victorious accomplishment of the cross work of Christ. How does he do that? Well, you see it. He says every priest daily ministers and offers oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, this servant son, this promised Messiah, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. So there he's just demonstrating the victorious work of Christ over the earthly priests. They're still standing in there doing their work. But he's finished. He's done. But secondly, in verse 12 and into verse 13, he interprets Psalms 110 verse 1 in connection with the overall context of Christ's covenant sacrifice and the instituting of the new covenant. That's the context where we're at in chapter 10. And notice he's dropping Psalms 110 in here. Now it's noteworthy for us to observe, and many of you remember this, that he's already employed Psalms 110 verse 1, this promise of the future reigning Messiah, victorious conqueror, accomplishing the work that he was sent to do and setting down at the right hand of the majesty on high until his enemies are made his footstool. He used this back in chapter 1, verse 13. But what I believe makes its use here unique for us is that he used it in chapter 1 to emphasize Jesus' divinity. However, here, do you see with me that he's using it to emphasize his exalted status or reward as a faithful servant? Beginning in chapter 9, up into this point in chapter 10, you have done this high priestly work for which you come, for which you are incarnated, this bloody, messy sacrifice of the covenant cross work. And now that it's once and for all done, the emphasis is the exaltation as a reward, as a covenant reward. Now, John 17, Father, bring me back down, bring me back to my glory which I knew before I came. He's exalted up. He's using Psalms 110, interpreting Psalms 110 distinctly in connection with the accomplishment upon the cross and bringing Jesus to the right hand of God. Chapter 1, he was using it to say, this is that promised Messiah exalting his divinity. Here he's using it to say it's fulfilled in connection with Jesus' cross work. Follow the train of thought. Look at verse 10. The servant's son sanctifies the people by his own death and his sacrifice. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There was the work. Verse 12. The servant's work is finished and it's accepted. Why else would he be exalted to the right hand of God if there was still left unfinished business? We see in verse 12 also a sense of reward and completion where he sets down in a position of rule. His session, we've noticed before, has already begun when he sat down. He finished the cross work. And then in verse 13, now he is confidently expecting his earned spoils. When you go as a warrior and you do things and you do hard battles, you get things in return. You guys remember the conquest of Abraham and his servant and 
the guy there in Sodom and Gore, the default king, came and wanted to give him the spoils. And Abraham said, no, 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 I don't want your spoils. You know, God, take care of me. The, the, the point was, this is all how it's been throughout wars in the nations. And we get this picture now that the exalted servant son is sitting at the right hand of God and he is expecting his enemies to be made his footstool. That's his reward. That's what he's going to be given. But how can he be confident that he will be given this? How can he be confident that his enemies will be made his footstool? Look at verse 14. Because by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Because of his blood being shed, he has in the Greek perfected, meaning completed, accomplished the salvation of his people, the whosoever's will believe upon him forever. It's done. It will happen. There's no if and or but chances that who Jesus Christ perfected through his blood as the covenant mediator will not come under the covering of his blood. To say there is, is an indictment against what the text of Hebrew is plainly saying that he victoriously accomplished what he did and it was accepted and he is at the right hand of the Father. The natural employment and interpretation of Psalms 110, we have to go there, we have to go here, friends, for a moment on this. The natural interpretation of Psalm 110 in this passage would go something like this. Paraphrasing. Because Christ fulfilled the obligations of the new covenant, all of his church, although by natural birth are born enemies in sin, we all are, they will be made his willful servants or his footstools in this language by being born again and brought into the new covenant. Okay? Now, the reason this is important, how he is utilizing Psalms 110 here, is because... We could simply say, as you see in your notes, Psalms 110, properly interpreting it, is made possible first by the person and the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And secondly, by subduing rebellious enemies, subduing rebellious hearts, and thus turning them into humble servants. I believe, dear friends, that the context demands that interpretation of Psalms 110. Also, When we find Psalms 110 employed other places in the New Testament, it always is referring to Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and more specifically His glorious gospel with the emphasis on the salvation of souls and the continual pilgrimage under the new covenant umbrella or administration. And so, knowing that, laying that groundwork, I hope that everyone in here who has been following through Hebrews and especially sees where the writer of Hebrews is sandwiching Psalms 110 between the blood work and the establishment of the new covenant, I hope we all would agree that it seems rather odd that some teachers, especially in our day and age, would have us to understand that a proper interpretation of Psalms 110 is a charge to the church that part of her gospel duty while she remains here on earth is to bring all human institutions and governments under the rule of Christianity either through coercion, legislation, or some, not all, to be fair, by force. Well, friends, such an interpretation seems a little bit forced. 
Especially in light of what we have here in chapter 10. The concentration, the focus is upon the toning work of Christ. And that can only be applied to the church. And what purpose is it applied to the church? To write the law of God upon their hearts so that their sins could be forgiven no more. Keep the gospel pure. Keep the work of the reigning Messiah clear. And while we, yes, as new creatures in Christ, ought to and should have a great impact in our families, in our workplaces, in the world in which we live. We are called, as Brother Bryce said last Sunday, I wasn't here, I can't wait to hear the message, but I know what text he was in. We are to be salt and light, brothers and sisters. But Psalms 110, properly exegeted, properly interpreted, is Christ sitting on the throne, waiting because of what he has accomplished, all of those who are now his enemies, to be made his footstool through the preaching of the gospel and the internalization of the spirit and the truth of the gospel, which is a blessing of the new covenant. That is what we see in verses 15 through 18. He exalts the son, and now he's going to honor the son. Look with me in verses 15 through 18. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, back in Jeremiah, you remember the verse as well, 31, 31 through 34. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The honoring of the servant's son in his performance in this covenant work is honored beginning here and is still being honored today, friends. It is only by this penal substitutionary work of Jesus Christ do any of us have any hope. Do any of us have the blessed promise that if you confess Christ with your mouth, you believe with your heart, you shall be saved. You will be saved. You will be spared. There is not a perpetual blood offering that has to be done year by year. No, because your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you believe, in whom you confess, in whom you're clinging on to by His sanctified ability, He has done it all. He has done it all. Dear friends, no matter where you're at in your walk, whether you're Jeremiah in chapter 33 right now, down in unjustified persecution in a pit, or you're perhaps like the Jews who were in a time of comfortability. They didn't have a sword at their back. They started drifting off, didn't they? Time and time again. No matter where you're at, look to Christ. Look to Christ. He is on the throne and He will sustain He will aid, He will help, and He will honor this covenant, this covenant of grace. Let's go to Him in prayer. Oh, Father, God, we come before You, and Lord, when we look especially where we are at today in this service, reading Jeremiah 33 and then Romans 4, and then coming here to Hebrews 10 where we see Psalms 40 and Psalms 110. 
Oh Lord, this beautiful chorus is being sung by Your Word. Lord, Your Spirit bears witness with our spirits as man that this Gospel is true. And we worship You, O God, that You have preserved and kept pure this witness, this song of salvation that has Christ at its center. And we do humbly ask You, O Father, give us clearer eyes to see. Give us, we pray, O Lord, uh, larger hearts to absorb the truths that we have been considering today. Continue to mold, continue to make us into the image of our Savior Jesus. And as we are about to approach the supper, oh, may we, Lord, look past what it symbolizes unto that which is the substance, the sacrifice, the high priestly work of our Savior, our covenant mediator. Blessed be His holy name. He now rules and reigns. And we pray and we ask, O God, if it would please Thee, that there is an enemy of Christ in our midst. Oh Lord, after you break them with the conviction of their transgressions, which Lord are earnestly deserved, will you point them to the bleeding side of the cross? Point them, oh God, we pray, to the joy which motivated Christ to come and to die for their sins. May they find hope and salvation and forgiveness. In the Lord Jesus, give faith, we pray, Lord. Grant saving faith this very hour. We bless you and we thank you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.